All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, if you will. Genesis chapter 1. Again, if you hit Revelation, you've gone too far, back up a lot, okay? We're at the beginning of it all here in Genesis chapter 1, and let's read verses 1 and 2 together this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Have you ever heard the term, read in between the lines? When we use that idiom, what we are saying is that in our culture, we are saying we want to know and understand the original intention of the author in whom wrote whatever we are reading. However, the origin of that actual idiom goes way back into the ancient world. And when letters were circulated and were meant to conceal a hidden message, the term would be used to identify that message. We must read in between the lines to understand what that message is truly conveying. As we come now to Genesis 1 and 1 and 2, there are many who believe that in between verses 1 and verse 2, there is a gap. And within that gap, a significant event has taken place. Now, all Christians don't agree on this, but there is some grammatical evidence that would allude to this and may be pertinent and is pertinent in its overall, to our study of understanding our being created in the image of God. As we know, our society is looking for identity. And when they say that, they're not only simply trying to identify who they are, but they're also trying to find meaning to life. They're trying to ask and ascertain, why am I here? What is my purpose for existence? What is the meaning and purpose of life? There's an emptiness in people today that is obvious. They're looking for relationships. They're looking for community. They're looking to belong. They're looking, in many cases, simply for friends. But in that pursuit, if it doesn't begin with God, it is futile in all of their attempts to try to fill that void that has been created in them because of the sin that has entered into mankind through Adam. To understand where it all went wrong, we need to consider what possibly took place in between these two verses. There is again, as I said, grammatical evidence that may elude and lead us to believe that a cataclysmic event took place between verse 1 and verse 2. Some have called this a gap, and of course leading to the understanding of what some may call the gap theory, a period of time in between verses 1 and 2. Now, this is heavily debated. Those who reject the idea of a gap theory 
they do so on the basis that the gap is used to explain the millions or billions of years that they believe the earth is in its existence. We here at Calvary believe, believe it or not, that we hold to a young earth, 6,000 years. We believe that God literally created the world in six literal 24-hour periods of time. But some have inserted a gap between verses 1 and 2 to allow for millions and billions of years. However, though, I don't think that if we hold to the idea that something happened in between these two verses, that it automatically leads us to have to believe that that took millions of years to occur. But let's take a look at these verses together. As we looked last week, the ten words found in one verse that refute every false philosophy that this world has put forward, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then comes verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. When you look at that and compare it to Isaiah and his recounting of this in Isaiah 45, 18, there's a variant within this that it appears that God created everything and then something happened. In verse 2 of chapter 1 of Genesis, it can also be translated into the English, everything became void. Everything became empty. And darkness was on the face of the earth. As one wrote, he said, the proponents of this view point out that the word translated was could also be translated had become. Thus the earth had become waste and empty. And this understanding that something may have happened here that leads our writer, Moses, to give us this insight that it was without form and void, which in the Hebrew is a very interesting word. And let me give it to you. It's tohu wabuhu. Okay? Don't ask me to repeat that. It's very interesting that God started the creation process, possibly, and it was interrupted by an event that caused his initial start of the creation to be laid waste, found empty. Now again, not all Christians agree with this. But I'm putting this forward to you this morning for the possibility of the event that could have occurred in this moment. And that event would be the fall of Satan himself. As we believe that the angels and Satan were created prior to the creation process, and were witnesses to creation itself. There are those theologians that speculate that as it began, Satan fell from his place of prominence as a cherubim in the heavenly places. 
As one wrote, he said, it was a chaos of wastedness, emptiness, and darkness. And such condition would not result from God's creative work, that is, bara. Rather, in the Bible, they are symptomatic, these elements, of sin, and are coordinated with judgment. Something happened. That's what individuals put forward. Now, again, I give this to you for your consideration. There are those who look at it differently. And this is something we certainly shouldn't argue about. But we do know that Satan fell. And why this is important to our discussion about our image in God is because this is where it all went wrong. As God created us as his centerpiece in the Garden of Eden to reflect him perfectly within his created world, to show and to demonstrate that he is in all authority over all of his creation, giving that authority, as he says, the dominion to us over his created work, allowing us to represent him and to show his authority over all that he has created. But when the fall occurred, that all changed. It went south fast. Sin and death entered in. And of course, we know as when we get to chapter 3 of Genesis, that the temptation that the serpent leveled against Eve was the beginning of that downfall. But where did he come from? The Bible in Revelation calls that serpent of old the devil himself. But where did the devil come from? How was he there present in the garden? For even the book of Ezekiel tells us that Satan, after his fall, presented himself in the garden of Eden. But where did he come from? Who was he? And why was his temptation and his seduction of Eve and Adam the beginning of our loss of our identity in God? For we were no longer able to reflect him perfectly to the world. We were no longer able to carry the dominion. We sacrificed that to Satan himself, evident by the fact that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan said, you can have all of this as he showed Jesus all of the kingdoms, all of the world. And if he would simply bow down and worship him, that is Satan, he could have all of this apart from the cross. And Jesus said, get ye behind me. No way, it ain't happening. In the, English, in the Eric Standard Version, it is hit the road, Jack, and don't come back. That's a very technical term. I don't want to go over your head this morning. But where Adam failed, Jesus won. And in and through Jesus, the image is being restored in each and every one of us. That's why we must not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's bringing us back each and every day, first through that reconciliation and then through that perfect restoration that only Jesus can provide for us. But to understand where it all went wrong, we need to understand Satan's fall, why he fell, 
and when it possibly occurred, interrupting possibly the creative process. And once it occurred, God went right back to doing what he said he was going to do. And today we will notice that he begins that process with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And do you know today, the Bible says in the New Testament that the Word of God is like water that washes us clean. And in the hand of the Holy Spirit, it is the instrument that is sanctifying us, bringing us out of darkness into light, out of death into life, and bringing us back to that restored image in which we were originally created, never to be perfected here in this world, but for all eternity. And I put forward this morning that what people are looking for and why they are struggling with their identity and why these longing questions still exist, even going to great lengths to try to answer them here in this world. The reason that they are so unsuccessful is because they're trying to do it apart from God. God is the answer that they're looking for. God is the relationship that they need desperately. And that relationship can only be established in and through the person of Jesus Christ. So let us begin as we look together in what possibly may have occurred here that laid the earth waste and empty and void. And as I say again this morning, it is sin that lays us waste, empty, and void. For each and every one of us has eternity in our heart. As Ecclesiastes tells us, that we were created with an eternal purpose. And anything less than that will leave us longing, unsatisfied. We will continue to feel empty. And that void will remain unless it is filled by the only one who can, and that is God himself. So let us turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. And both as Isaiah and Ezekiel prophesy concerning kings of that time, woven in these prophecies are given to us the events that took place that give us an account of the fall of Satan himself, who was a created angel, one of the cherubim, one of the elite angels of heaven, fell because of pride, fell because he desired to be worshipped as God, to sit on the throne of God, etc. And God cast him down, positioning him in a place to tempt and to lure away and seduce God's creation. You see, Satan was jealous of the relationship that we had with God. Satan knew that he could not be restored or redeemed. We then became the jewel of God's eye, the centerpiece of his creation. In the ancient world, when individuals of pagan societies would create their gardens... They would be lush, they would be beautiful in their appearance. But then within the center of that garden, they would then resurrect a statue to the God of their choice, 
showing that this is the one in whom they worship. Now, God did it just the opposite way. After his creation, creating his garden, he put you and I in there. Not that we should be objects of worship, but that we should be individuals who worship him. That was the testimony given in the garden. But notice with me in verse 11 of chapter 28 of the book of Ezekiel. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up your lamentations for the king of Tyre has said to him and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were sealed, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now this can't simply be, this cannot simply be an address to the king of Tyre because he could have never been in the garden of Eden. Every precious was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the braille, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and the emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrel and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Satan appears to have an affinity towards music and great beauty. Even Paul the Apostle said that Satan can appear as an angel of light to further his deception. Notice with me in verse 14. You were the anointed cherubim who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. See, he has to be talking about something greatly more significant than just simply the king. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity or sin was found in you. But the abundance of your trade, trading, you became filled with violence within. And you sinned, and therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your mists. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the people are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. In Isaiah 14, 12, and 15, should be on the screen behind me, Isaiah writes similarly when he says, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of of the pit. And in each of these occurrences, we see that Satan exalted himself before God. The pride of his heart 
the pride of his nature, desired to be worshipped as God is worshipped. And as a result, God cast him out of heaven. Unfortunately, it didn't end there, right? To this day, Satan is still at work. And one of the greatest advantages that Satan has today is the fact that no one believes that he exists. For the Bible tells us that there are two kingdoms. There is one, the kingdom of God. The other is the kingdom of the ruler of this world, also known as Satan. It is these two kingdoms that are in conflict with one another. And each person of this world is of one of those two kingdoms. The question is, what kingdom are you of? Many people think that if they don't believe in God, that they become free moral agents. That they are subjected to no one and to nothing. That they chart out their own destiny for their own purposes. And yet, all along, Satan has deceived them. And as they go through life and maybe even have all of the blessings of this world, and they go through their life in comfort and in material wealth, in the end of it, Jesus said this wide path leads to destruction. But there are others. Individuals who God has reached down from heaven to claim for His own. Individuals who follow Jesus Christ, whose path is much narrower, fewer traveled, and it is very difficult day in and day out, where you feel like at times you are just slugging it out one inch at a time. You look around and you say, oh, others have it so easy, and they don't follow God. They seem like they have all that they want. And they don't follow God, yet I do, and everything has become harder. Let me tell you this way. It takes a lot more work for a fish to swim against the current than a dead fish to flow down with it. Because the wide way is going to lead them to destruction, but this narrow way is going to lead us to everlasting life. The moment we realize that as Christians, this is not our home. Heaven is. And the reason that we can sustain the difficulty, the suffering, the trials, tribulations, and troubles of today is because we are not alone in this endeavor. For God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We also have a peace that surpasses all understanding. That peace is often derived from our understanding of who we are. What God wants from us. We now know the meaning of life. As God is returning us into His image. We understand joy even when our circumstances wouldn't warrant it. We can be joyful when others would mourn and be sorrowful even when it comes to the death of an individual. Because if that individual is in Christ, we know that they have simply fallen asleep and they've opened their eyes in heaven. And we're going to see him again one day. We're going to see him again one day. Don't be deceived. Satan often, often, will materially, wordily bless individuals. 
to think in their heart that they are in no need of God and in the end, they will end up in eternity separated from God in a state of destruction. But Jesus says, I've got something better. That I've got something that you're looking for and longing for. And only I, he says, can fill that void that has been left in you because of the fall and the separation that occurred from me when sin entered into this world. It is that that I bring forward to you this morning. Notice with me that the very first thing that happened, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God's role in the life and the sanctification and the fulfillment of the Christian is indispensable. It is the Spirit working in the Word of God today that brings us back into the image of Jesus Christ. That process is called sanctification. I'll never forget when Jesus offered to wash the feet of the disciples. Peter, being the theologian that he was, said, no, no, no way, you're not doing that for me. Uh-uh. He looked at him and said, Peter, look, if I don't, then can't come in. You're not part of the kingdom. What did Peter say? Then wash me all over, Lord. Wash me all over. You know, each and every day, like them, we need our feet washed. As they walked from place to place to place, of course, they didn't wear Nikes or New Balances or Birkenheimers or whatever they're called, you know, Birkenstocks, excuse me, all right? They were barefoot. I'm always amazed at people who walk around barefoot, you know what I'm saying? They can, they can walk on anything, glass shards, you know, stones and gravel, I walk across the grass, and if I find one pebble, I'm, I'm hopping and limping along for the rest of the day. But their feet got dirty, and therefore they needed to have their feet washed each and every day. And Jesus used this as an example for us. Yeah, as we travel for, through this world, we're going to get dirty, right? We're going to see things and hear things that we wish we wouldn't. And the only thing that's going to wash us again is the water of the Word, as we get into the Bible each and every day, it just washes us again. Oh, of course, the blood of Jesus Christ washed us once and for all to positionally place us perfect before God the Father. But practically, we are still a work in progress. And it is always the Word of God with the Spirit of God that brings those two uh, elements together in effectiveness into continually changing us from the inside out. That's what transformation is. Conformity is an external pressure placed upon us. The world is trying to shape us and mold us into their image. They want us to think like them, act like them, talk like them. And they will go to great lengths to conform us into their image. I love when people say, I want to be an individual. I want to stand out. And so they do things thinking that that's causing uniqueness in their life when in actuality they're just conforming to everybody else who's already done it before. It's exception through uniqueness and within conformity. But the Christian, 
God is doing something great each and every day. The Bible goes on to tell us that everything is working together for good in our life. Now, I don't always understand that, do you? Going through things that I've gone through, I haven't understood how God could possibly have used that for good. Now, the good is not subjectively defined. It is specifically defined. It's defined by the understanding that what that good represents is the conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what the good is representing. He says it very clearly in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8. But I don't always understand how God does that. But he promises that he does. And I don't know about you, but next year I'll be a Christian 40 years, and I look back, and all those things that I didn't understand at the moment, I have a better understanding of now, looking at, back at them in hindsight. God, I didn't see what you were doing then, but I see it now. And you were faithful to your promises, restoring us back to the image of God. As one pastor wrote, he said, Suddenly, you hear a Bible study, you listen to a radio program, you watch a crusade on TV, or talk to a buddy as the water of the Word is shared and the Spirit of God moves and you are changed, transformed from the inside out. The God-shaped whole concept that each and every one of us has and contends with is a reality. That void was created the moment the moment we were separated from God for all eternity. That God-shaped hole is the innate longing for human, of the human heart for something outside itself, something transcendent, something other. As Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he said, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He also has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. Meaning that God has placed an innate understanding that we were created for something more. And the moment we were separated from God through sin, that void was created. And we today try to fill that void with so many things that are incapable of filling it. As one wrote, he says, this refers to God placing an eternity in man's heart. God made humanity for his eternal purposes. And only God can fill our desires for eternity. All religion is based on the innate desire to connect with God. This desire can only be fulfilled by God and therefore can be likened to a God-shaped void within our heart. However, though, because our heart is desperately wicked... It often wants to lean on things that cannot fill it. As Jeremiah said in 17.9, he said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Again, Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, The wisest man apart from Christ that lived. He said, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that no one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the Son of Men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after they, that, they go to the dead. Sadly, too many are looking for something to fill that void other than God. 
as they long for meaning, they try to fill it with their business, with their family, with sports, etc. But in pursuing these things, they realize that they are not eternal, they are temporal in nature. They remain unfulfilled and wonder why their lives never seem satisfactory. There is no doubt that many people pursuing these things other than God himself achieve a measure of happiness for a time, but then it is fleeting. And in and of itself does not last. Solomon was speaking from experience. He gained everything that this world had to offer in such abundance that none of us could come to compare with what he had gained. And yet the wisdom that God had given him, he chose not to use. And in the end of his life, as he wrote to his children in hopes that they would not make the same mistake that he made, he hoped that they would not go in the direction that he went. That they would learn that nothing of this world will fill them and satisfy them like God and God alone can. It won't be their riches or their success or esteem or power in the world. For all of those are temporary and fleeting. All men seek after in this life, we see that none of it will fulfill the longing for eternity. And thus he declared, it is all vanity, meaning that he sought after the things in vain because they did not satisfy. This is what people are looking for today to a depth that we haven't ever seen in our society. Where individuals are looking for an identity even to the point of choosing a gender to reflect. All of this is a testimony of how far we are from God. But I love those who are coming to Jesus Christ. I think of one, his name is Ali London, went through 32 transition surgeries in his life thinking that not only becoming or transitioning from a man to a woman, but from Caucasian to Korean would satisfy him. And as he went and the years progressed, each and every surgery gave him a temporal comfort as he thought he finally found his identity. But then he realized that all of them were lacking in its permanency in his heart and satisfying him. And one day walking through the streets of London, of all places, his home city, he was walking past a church. And growing up in a Christian uh, school and going to church as a child, he walked in through the doors and they saw him. And they began to speak with him and talk with him showing him the love of Jesus Christ, answering his questions, and reminding him of what he said he already knew, and that is that God and only God can fill that void in his life. Today he's a champion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is going into areas that none of us could ever enter in. He's helping individuals uh, detransition He's telling people the truth when they are confronted and surrounded and inundated by lies. God has opened his eyes to a new reality. And it's amazing to hear this man's testimony. 
and you see it within him. He was one of the first original TikTok influencers to gain one million followers. And he said none of that mattered in light of all that he discovered in Jesus Christ. God is working. But the only thing that will fill that void in our life is God himself. At the end of Solomon's life, he wrote these words. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all, he writes. Just as a square peg cannot fill a round hole, neither can that God-shaped void inside of each and every one of us be filled by anyone or anything other than God himself. Only through a personal relationship with God, through faith in Jesus Christ, can that God-shaped void be filled and the desire for eternity fulfilled in a permanent way. When Satan fell and tempted Eve and Adam in the garden, Jesus said this about Satan and the purpose of his coming. Notice with me. He says this in John 10.10, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I like what John said in his first epistle as he expounded on this thought in 1 John 3 8 he says this he who sins is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning for this is the purpose of the son of God for this purpose the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil amen that's what God has come for the only hope the only thing that will save our world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And each and every one of you must see yourselves as an ambassador for him. This world is dying around us. I don't have to put forward an argument to prove that to you. But God has us here today for a time such as this. People are longing. They are hurting. They are empty. They are void. They are being led down a wide path that will lead them to destruction. And yet God has us here for this purpose that we can be lights in the darkness. That we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in and of ourselves or alone. God is with us in the pursuit of these individuals. And more importantly, we have an ally that is superior to anything that can be found in this world, and that is the Spirit of God. You and I are set forward. Let's see what God would want to do as he not only reminds us of who we are in him, created in his image and found restored in Christ, but let us also see who God would have us to reach for his glory and his purposes that they too might experience what we are experiencing in our life today in and through Jesus. Amen?